Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. morning, Grace. Let's grab our Bibles and turn to Philippians. If you're visiting, uh, typically we just take a book of the Bible and work our way through it. And right now we are in the book of Philippians. We've titled this series, Joy Unleashed, because we believe that if you trust in Jesus Christ and you begin to see him as he is and all that he's done for you, then your joy in him will in fact be unleashed and he will become the greatest treasure for you in this life according to Matthew 13. And that's what we're praying will happen to each and every one of us through this series. So Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 3 through 11 today. I've titled this sermon, How Gospel Rehearsal Produces Lowly-Minded Disciples. And I got the idea from Matthew Henry's commentary. So don't get mad at me if you don't see the word lowly-minded in the dictionary. Uh, You can take it up with Matthew Henry in heaven, okay? But... Just going by what he said, he said we should be like-minded and lowly-minded, so I'm going to go with Matthew Henry instead of Noah Webster. Uh, Last week we saw that gospel rehearsal produces like-minded disciples, that as uh, we begin to review and rehearse the gospel, then we begin thinking the same way, and specifically we looked at... uh, how we plan to literally be like-minded as a church body in 2012 and beyond. And we're going to do that through God's Word, through reading it, through meditating on it, and through memorizing it. So if you weren't here last week and you want to know where we want to go from here on out, I encourage you to go online and listen to the sermon. We we introduced uh, what I... uh, a ministry called Fighter Verses, and they're in your bullets and they're in your sermon notes. And, and we decided that we're going to begin memorizing verses every single week as a church body so that we'll be thinking the same thoughts, thinking the same scriptures and praying them and literally be like-minded. So I, I challenge you to do this. And those of you that did that, whatever version you memorized it in, we're, we're doing the ESV. I want us to recite it now. I want us to give the reference and then recite the verse and then give the reference. Okay, we ready? The reference is Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah 48. You guys did great. Now, one quick thing. Do not be discouraged by the fire verse that's in your notes this week, okay? It's long. I didn't plan it though. I'm just going by the plan that they have. Here's what I want you to do. If you can memorize this week's, great. If it's too much for you, I would rather you read it think about it, pray it for this church body in this city. And then if you don't memorize it, move on. What I don't want you to do is to try to memorize it and then fail and get discouraged and just say, I can't memorize verses, okay? So if you need to skip this week's because it's too much for you because this is all new, that's okay, all right? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Lord, we are all so undeserving. We're all rotten, despicable sinners, And some of us have been saved by your grace. And so we are simultaneously a sinner, and yet we're justified in your eyes because of your son, Jesus. And that's so amazing, God. I'm unworthy to stand before your people and under your word. So would you help me this morning, God? Or would you help us to learn more about you and learn more about your son and what he's done for us in the gospel? Help us by your spirit for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
In his book, To Follow Him, Seven Marks of a Disciple, Dr. Mark Bailey, the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, tells a great story about how children and how kids think. He says, one Sunday, just after our younger son Jeremy was born, Josh and I were driving across Bell Road in North Phoenix on our way to church. Josh was five at the time, and we all know how five-year-olds think. At least I thought I knew until that day. Josh and I were involved in the normal chit-chat between father and son when he said, Dad, have I told you about my system? I wasn't sure what he meant, so I answered no. He began to point at different parts of his head as he recounted what he was thinking about. Pointing to his right temple, he said, Right here, I have Dukes of Hazard cars. On this other side, he said, pointing to his left temple, I have Star Wars toys. Over here, I have cartoons. And then putting his hand in the back of his head, he said, Back here, I have Jesus dying on the cross. Before I could speak, he said, But Dad, there is a secret to my system. I wasn't sure whether to keep driving or to pull over and take notes. He explained, they're going around in a circle, spinning all the time. Sometimes I think about my cartoons. Sometimes I think about my Star Wars people. At other times, I like driving my cars. I also think about Jesus dying on that cross for me. And I will never forget what he said, especially his next line. Dad, he finished, what I really need to do is get Jesus from back here pointing at the back of his head, to up here, pointing at the front of his head. I almost drove off the road as tears filled my eyes. What profound thinking for one so young. He had just echoed the scriptural truth, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And I had just been instructed by our five-year-old in the significance of the mind and the cross and the vital connection of reckoning with the cross. Dr. Bailey goes on to say that a committed disciple needs to deal with that very truth, the need to reckon with the cross on a day-by-day, front-of-the-mind basis. That's what we see in these verses here today. This is what Paul is trying to get across to the Philippian church, the need to reckon with the cross on a day-by-day, front-of-the-mind basis. And as we saw last week, this happens in a disciple's life through gospel rehearsal. As we rehearse the gospel messages, we rehearse the fact that Jesus came into this world, that he died in our place. God raised him from the dead to bring us to God to be with him forever. As we rehearse that message, our mind is renewed and we, have, we become like-minded disciples. Our, our minds are transformed as we rehearse the gospel message. Now, here's our big idea for today. God is glorified in you when you look outside of yourself, give up your rights, and stoop down to serve others. So you kind of have this in, out, up and down motif here. If you want God to be glorified in your life, you must look outside of yourself and give up your rights and stoop down and serve others because that's what Jesus did. And that's why Paul is dragging Jesus into the picture here because he wants to show the Philippians how God can be glorified in your life. The reason I start this big idea by saying God is glorified is because that's where any disciple should start. How can I glorify God in my life? It's Paul actually culminates in verse 11 
by saying all that Jesus did, his reign, his life, his death, his resurrection, brought God glory. Paul kind of culminates with it, but we're going to start our big idea with it. So we have the emphasis on God being glorified. So what Paul's about in this book, uh, in chapter 1, verse 11, he ends this magnificent prayer by saying all glory will go to God. And he concludes the book in chapter 4, verse 20, by saying all glory to God. This is what Jesus did for us. He looked outside of himself. He gave up his rights. He stooped down and entered this world as a slave and died in our place. And as we rehearse that message, the gospel message, we'll then be enabled to follow in Jesus' footsteps. We'll then be lowly-minded disciples. We'll become servants to others. We'll die to ourself, and then all of this glorifies God. That's the reason why you are breathing right now. Did you know that? The reason you are sitting where you're sitting, the reason you are on this planet is to give God glory. The Westminster Confession says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You were created so that you would glorify God and enjoy him more than anything in this world. And the way that you can glorify God in your life and in this church body today is by just giving up your rights, stooping down and serving other people and looking to other people and and quit looking at that face in the mirror and worshiping that person. Now look at verses three through four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul's continuing his thought here from verses one and two that we saw last week. Uh, we saw last week he, he encouraged them to have the same mind uh, or to, to think a certain way and then act upon that. And now in verse 3, he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. What's interesting here that we don't see in the English is that there's no main verb in verse 3. The idea is carried over from verses 1 and 2, where Paul used that, that Greek word I told you about, phreneo, which means to have the same mind or to think a certain way and then to act upon it. And that verb is carried over into uh, verse 3 here. The Greek language can do that, okay? You grammar people are like, oh, you can't do that. Well, you can do it in Greek. So the force of that verb, to think a certain way and then to act upon it, has now moved into verse 3. So Paul would say this. I think it's what he's saying here is, don't even think any thoughts motivated by selfish ambition and pride. Don't even think this way because if you think this way, you will act on it. I think Paul is saying, don't even entertain any thoughts about you getting your way, because if you start thinking those thoughts, Paul says you're going to act upon them. You see, if we are not rehearsing the gospel message that we see here, that Jesus came as a servant to die in our place, then we will begin thinking those thoughts, and then we will be acting on it. And it'll happen in two ways. Paul says there in verse 3, it'll happen through rivalry and through conceit. There'll be rivalry between us and the people in our lives. There'll be this tug of war. I want my way, you want your way in your marriage, in parenting, in our kids with each other, in our workplaces, in our friends, in our neighborhood. There's this rivalry that happens where everyone's pulling, saying, I want my way. And Paul says, if you aren't renewing your mind and thinking and rehearsing the gospel, then you're going to want your way. 
You're going to pull towards yourself. And he says, then conceit comes in. Literally, it's this Greek word, it's empty glory. It's, it's empty glory because only Christ is glorious. And when we pull towards ourselves wanting our own way, we then begin to puff ourselves up and say, my way is the best way. And so we, it's empty though, because who are we? A bunch of fallen sinners. Paul's point here is that we aren't to do anything to make our name great, to puff ourselves up, to get our way, or to get something out of it for ourselves. Because see, that's our default mode, isn't it? We all want our own way, don't we? We're all like Burger King. Have it your own way? We all want our own way, don't we? It's, it's, it's a part of who we are. And Paul is saying, give it up. Don't even think these thoughts. Now, this is very practical and penetrating. We all want our own way, don't we? We all want our own style of worship. We all want our own choice of restaurant. If you've, who, whoever has the clicker, the remote control in your house has the power. We all want to watch our own shows, don't we? What happens if, if you're thinking you want to watch a show and somebody beats you to the remote? What happens? The tug of war, the rivalry begins. I want my way. We want to get something out of every situation for ourselves. And the reason James says so in, in chapter 4 of his epistle is we fight with other people, with our spouses, with our children, our children with each other, our coworkers, people here at church. We fight because we don't get what we want. Paul, however, though, Paul is not saying we should never, ever do anything to get anything out of it ourselves. Paul would say you should serve other people for the joy and the blessing that you get out of it. Okay, so understand, I'm not saying you should never serve for the joy or the blessing you should get out of it. You should serve that way. Because if I said you shouldn't, then it would be contradicting Jesus. Because in Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And then Paul will uh, exhort the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 35. He says, in all these things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So there is a sense in which we serve other people for what we get out of it, namely the blessing and the joy and the happiness Because that's what Paul told the Ephesian elders here. He said, work hard, help the weak, and when you lack the desire to do so, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is better. You'll be more blessed, you'll be more happy, you'll have more joy if you give than if you receive. That goes against our nature, doesn't it? Who we are at our core says, I will be happier if I get what I want. And Paul says, no, you must rehearse the gospel. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed, more happy, more joyful to give and serve other people than to receive. Jesus is just so otherworldly, isn't he? Where did he get this idea? It goes against me. My thoughts are I will be happy when I get my way. And my family will tell you that. And Jesus comes along and says, you know, you're wrong, Benji Magnus. You'll be more happy if you give than if you receive. That's a hard lesson for me to learn. I am struggling with this. 
I don't like to serve my family unless I'm getting something out of it besides joy and happiness in the Lord. I want to clean the house because I want a clean house, not because I want to serve them. This is a hard lesson for me to learn that I'll have more joy if I serve other people than if I give and then if I get and get and get. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, I want you to be givers. Just give, give, give. Don't be takers. Don't be selfish. Now look at verse 3 again. Paul says this, But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Notice the contrast here. Instead of having this rivalry and this tug of war in all of our relationships where we puff ourselves up and think our way is the best way, Paul says instead of doing that, there's the contrast, the but. In humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's hard to do, isn't it? Because who's the most significant person in the room? The person in the mirror, correct? That's how we think. And Paul's saying, no. He's saying, don't do that. In humility, consider others more significant. There's actually something significant about the word significant here. Paul uses the same word in Philippians chapter 3 and in chapter 4. Listen to this. In Philippians 3, 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That word surpassing there is the same word here. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And Paul uses that word here in chapter 2, verse 3. What Paul is saying is that just as there is, nothing surpasses knowing Jesus Christ in this world. Nothing. And and nothing uh, compares to God's peace, his surpassing peace that transcends all understanding. Paul says, in the same way that those things are are beyond us and they're they're magnificent and glorious, Paul's saying, in the same way, consider others as surpassing you, as more significant than you, as better than you. That's hard, isn't it? Those of you who are married, think about it. Your spouse is to be seen as more significant and surpassing you. Ouch. Because I want my way in the marriage. And Paul's saying, in humility, consider others as surpassing you. Others are greater than you. Man, we could close up shop. This is enough conviction already. It's enough to prepare this sermon and type it up. And then to preach it, it's like, man, to consider others better than us. But if we do that, then Paul says in Acts 20 that we'll have more joy and then God will get more glory and then other people will get joy. It's a win-win-win situation and most importantly, God will be glorified when we do it. You see, God is glorified in you when you look outside of yourself You give up your rights. You give up your right to the remote control. Give up whatever right it is, and you stoop down to serve others. But it requires humility. I think John Calvin is correct. He says, now, if anything in our whole life is difficult, this above everything else is so. Hence, it is not to be wondered if humility is so rare a virtue. Calvin's saying, this is the reason why humility is so rare because it is hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to humble yourselves and consider others better. 
There was a certain firm uh, that made some headlines a few years ago. They would send out their well-trained employees on a mission. And this was their mission, to squash juicy pies into the faces of pompous individuals. So imagine the scene as some you know, dignified, well-dressed executive vice president of this large company is in the elevator waiting for the doors to open. The ding happens, he steps out, and then a stranger whips out a pie out of a cardboard box and just plants it right into his face. This is what one of the employees of the pie-tossing company said. He said this, A pie in the face brings a man's dignity down to where it should be and puts the big guys on the same level as everyone else. See, the truth is we could all use a pie in the face, spiritually speaking. And that's what Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11 are doing to us because we are all overwhelmingly selfish, are we not? Genesis 3 has ruined us all through and through. We all want our own way in every single situation we find ourselves in unless we die to it by the power of the Spirit and rehearse the gospel. That's our default mode. Give me what I want. And the only way to overcome that is by the power of the Spirit of God and through the gospel as you rehearse it. So Paul's saying here, count others more significant than yourselves. Get your eyes off of yourselves and onto others. See, God is glorified in you. When you look outside of yourself and you give up your rights, valid rights, you give them up. And you stoop down and you serve others. Anybody want to change their marriage? That'll change your marriage. I'm going to change their homes. Anyone want to change their workplace, their neighborhood, this city? That's how you do it. You do what Jesus did. You look outside of yourself. You give up your rights. And you stoop down in humility and you serve others. The only way we'll ever do that is if we rehearse the gospel. And we remind ourselves everything that Jesus has done for us. Now look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Some, some Bible translations here have don't merely look at your own interests. That's what the ESV has here. Um, let each of you look not only to his own interests. I think the New American Standard has it as well. In the New American Standard, it's italicized because the translators are telling you that that italicized word is not in the original Greek. In, in fact, the Greek says this, not the things of yourselves each of you look at, but the things of others. There's no merely there. Okay? We insert the word merely because it's too strong of a commandment for us. It's saying, don't look to your own interests. Look to other people's interests. How can Paul say this? Don't look to my own interests. Paul is saying that because he knows by default we will look to our own interests. So he doesn't say, don't merely look at your own interests. Look at he knows you're going by default to look at your own interests. What has to be corrected in the Philippians' minds and in their thinking is, don't look at your interests, look at other people's. You've got to look at other people's because I know you're going to look to your own interests. So Paul has to be strong here. He has to be forceful by saying, don't look at your interests. Look at other people's interests. Scope in on them. Fix your attention on them with desire and a passion to say, I want to serve you. What I want doesn't matter what you want. I want to serve you. 
Now, how in the world do we do that? You have to be intentional. You have to get up every morning and say, I'm going to serve the people in my life today. Whoever I come across, I'm going to be intentional, God. You do that by rehearsing the gospel, by reminding yourself throughout today all that God is for you and his son, Jesus Christ. The only way you can do it is by rehearsing the gospel, by getting a different mindset, which is what Paul encourages them in verse 5 to do. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Again, this is that Greek word for neo, which means to think a given way and then to act upon it. Here, it's a present tense imperative. Paul is saying, you should always be thinking and acting the way Jesus did. You should always be rehearsing the gospel so that as your mind is renewed and transformed, you begin to act out the things that you're thinking. And if you're thinking about Jesus dying in your place to bring you to God, that he became a slave for you, as you think those thoughts, Paul is saying you should always be acting out upon that. The way to get our eyes off of ourselves is to get them onto Jesus and by looking at him. The way to die to our desires and to occupy ourselves with other people is by occupying our thoughts and our minds with Jesus. By rehearsing the gospel message, which is what Paul's doing here in chapter 2. He's rehearsing the gospel with them. He's reminding them all about Jesus Christ, that, that he is our example And if we are to think differently and thus act differently, if we're to die to ourselves and not look to our interests, but look to the interests of others, we need a model. We need someone who did it perfectly all the time, and it was Jesus. So we have to look at him. We have to keep thinking about the gospel. Now, Paul's going to spell the gospel out more clearly. Look at verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Understand this about this passage. This passage is not primarily written as a a doctrinal treatise on the incarnation, on the humanity of Jesus. And and it's, it's valid to go there. But this passage was not written. Paul did not write this passage so that theologians and scholars later on would talk about the humanity of Jesus Christ. The the main reason this portion of Philippians was written was so that Paul would say, you need to give up your rights and serve other people because that's what Jesus did. That's the thrust of this passage. It's okay to go here when you're talking about the incarnation of Christ, when you're talking about the fact that he is both God and man. Two natures united in one person. But the thrust, this isn't a theological treatise on the incarnation as it relates to that. This is a theological treatise on the incarnation that Jesus Christ became a slave and laid his life down for us. That's the thrust of the passage. He gave up his rights. Now, Paul says Jesus was in the form of God, which means that he was God. He's always been God. He was never created. He has always been God. He has always existed in eternity past with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. 
And Jesus, who was God, Paul says, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not feel like he had to hold on to what he already did possess. He didn't figure it, think it's something that he had to grasp and, and hang on to and exploit for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself a servant. He made himself nothing. He made himself a slave. He didn't use his position as God as a means to get and to get and to get. What did he do? Paul says that he emptied himself. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? It means this, he gave up his rights. He did not empty himself of anything. He did not empty himself of his deity or he would cease to be God. He did not empty himself of any of his attributes, although some people believe that, that he, limit, that he gave up some of his attributes. He didn't give up anything. What he gave up was his rights. If he gave up any part of, of who he was as God, then he would cease to be God, correct? What he gave up here was his rights. He emptied himself and made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant, of a slave, Verse 7 says that he, taking the form of a servant, which is highlighting Jesus' humility. But Paul's not saying that Jesus exchanged one form for another here, that, that he was God, he gave that up, and then he became a slave. No, without ever giving up who he was, which was God, Jesus adopted the mode of existence of a slave. He remained God, but he took on human flesh. He was fully God, fully man. Those two natures were united in one person, but he became a slave, a servant. He always was God, and he would remain God. But he would be the God-man now. But Paul's point by saying he emptied himself is that he gave up his rights. One of my friends, used to be one of my professors, he's a pastor now, and he's one of my friends, Eric Hartman says this, Jesus was born to serve. Christian, you were born again to serve. That's the impact of this passage here. Jesus was born into this world to serve us, rebels. Christian, you were born again to serve, to serve all the people that are in your life. Jesus served by becoming obedient to death on a cross. He stooped down to our level and became a slave He stooped down to our level and went to the cross. He looked to our interests and our needs, which were what? We needed to be reconciled with a holy God. He looked outside of himself, gave up his rights, looked to us, saw our desperate need as fallen sinners who were rebels against a holy God and have broken his commandments. And he said, there's a need, there's an interest. They need to be reconciled to God. So he came to earth and went to the cross to remedy our spiritual condition. And he did it by going to the cross. And the cross was scandalous. In this time, people didn't talk about the cross. They didn't put links to YouTube from Facebook about the cross. You didn't talk about crucifixion at the dinner table. It was off limits. People were like, we don't talk about crucifixion. We don't talk about that in our family. People didn't talk. It wasn't dinner time conversation. People wouldn't wear crosses around their necks the way we do. And that's okay. 
Here's the equivalent of what they would have worn around their neck, an electric chair. Can you imagine wearing an electric chair pendant around your necklace? That's what the cross was like. It was this vicious, bloody, scandalous thing that the worst of the worst went to. And yet Jesus, perfect, sinless, God-man, went there for us. He left the glories of heaven and came to the earth to save us. John Calvin says, Since then, the Son of God descended from so great a height, how unreasonable that we who are nothing should be lifted up with pride. If the infinitely glorious God-man, Jesus Christ, can come from the glories of heaven to this earth, how unreasonable is it that us, fallen, sinful mankind, or nothing, How unreasonable is it that that we would elevate ourselves in pride and think life is all about us? See, Jesus looked outside of himself. He stooped down. He served others. He gave up his rights. But then God highly exalted him. The lowly-minded servant Jesus was then highly exalted and given the name above every name and every knee shall bow before him one day and confess him as Lord. Pretty significant because in Paul's day in Philippi, they would have have confessed that Caesar is Lord. Everyone will go around saying Caesar is Lord. Paul said there's coming a day when every single person will bow their knee before the God-man Jesus Christ and say, you are Lord. The question is, are you going to do it as his child? Are you going to do it as his enemy? Jesus came to glorify God by dying in our place to bring us to, to God and we're, we're called to model him. If you want God to be glorified in your life, then look outside of yourself. Give up your rights and stoop down to serve others. That's what we're called to do. Christian, you were born again to serve. Jesus was born to serve. And when you struggle to serve, you rehearse the gospel and you remind yourself all that Jesus did for you. And you say, God, would you radically change my mind and my heart right now to want to serve others? That means it's as practical as in your house. You don't want to serve your spouse or your kids. You don't want to serve your overbearing boss. You remember what Jesus has done for you when you were an enemy and a rebel. And you say, Jesus, I look at you and... I want to be like you, and I want to do what you did for me, for others. And then you, you go to 1 Peter four eleven, which says, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory. When you think, I can't serve, you say, God, would you give me the strength to serve? And then when you serve with the strength that he provides, who gets the glory? He does. And that's what it's all about. It's why we exist, to give him glory. So when you struggle to serve your family and your coworkers and people here at church and in your neighborhood, say, God, would you help me because I'm struggling right now. Would you let the gospel get into my heart so that I'm transformed and I want to serve them? It's hard. Let me tell you, it's hard. And I'm struggling to do it. But as I rehearse the gospel and keep rehearsing the gospel, then God will give me the strength to do it, and he'll do the same for you. 
We're about to enter into time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. And um, we know in Scripture that we're called to examine ourselves, see how we're relating to the rest of the church body. Are we uh, defiantly in sin, rebellious, hard-heartedness, not wanting to change our ways? Then, Then we're challenged in Scripture to examine ourselves. And listen, as we all examine ourselves, we're going to see as ourselves as sinners who've blown it, who are unworthy to come. But as we confess our sins, then we can come to the table and it can be a time of joy. But we need to examine ourselves and just admit. Just take a moment here and just a moment, just admit and say, God, I can't love that person. You've got to help me. Maybe it's here with your spouse. Maybe it's somebody else in this church body that you can't stand or a coworker. Do business with God now. Say, God, would you help me? Forgive me and help me be able to celebrate the gospel through these elements right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for moving to this earth to save rebels who live contrary to you. God, we all come here knowing there are sins that we've done this morning, this past week, this past month, this past year. We need to be forgiven of God. Many of us oftentimes harbor bitterness and unforgiveness. Would you let the gospel wreck our hearts so much this morning that we'd say, I can forgive that person. God, we ask you to forgive us finding pleasure and delight in the things of this world more than you. And would you cleanse us, God, and wash us, make us new, Father, make us a people who rehearse the gospel over and over again. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.